Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. What are some of the other foods and and um, that you can eat to optimize our mental clarity and brain health. Yeah, so uh, I want to talk about some of the, I have a list of power players in the new book and a bunch of illustrations around this, but we're looking for foods that are going to increase or influence things like BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factors, a molecule in our brain that is really important for our brain's growth and repair. And how you eat and your dietary pattern seems to really influence the expression of that molecule. I'm really excited to have you on here. Superman, thank you. So, um, yeah, just just to begin, I um, obviously you're, you're a psychiatrist. Just kind of talking off air about the wild nightlife of psychiatrists, but I uh, <laughs> just just kidding, by the way, guys. But um, I wanted to know this new. Maybe it's new. Maybe it's at least I haven't heard of it, which is nutritional psychiatry. And can you give just an overview of what that is? Yeah, for sure. Nutritional psychiatry is really a, an idea that a few of us have been trying to grow maybe over the last 15, 20 years or so. And, and it's the intersection of food and mental health. And, and there's been a tremendous amount of data uh, that has emerged really over the last five years. The best of it has been over the last five years, but over the last decade, really demonstrating a few things that how we eat relates to depression risk in a population. It's kind of a fascinating idea, right? You think about a college, college cafeteria, the idea, well, you know, what we put in there might make a difference in terms of how many people in that uh, school get depressed or get anxiety mm. disorders. We just never really thought that way or that much about food in mental health or in psychiatry, you know, in, in part because psychiatry and mental health have really been trying to get legitimacy in medicine for a long time. And to do sure. that, we need to be like all about receptors and meds and, you know, somehow food, uh, you know, doesn't feel like a powerful intervention sometimes, even though we know it, it, it really can be. Right. I, I define right. it nutritional psychiatry. I really define it as nutritional psychiatry. It's the use of nutrition uh, to optimize brain health and in the treatment and prevention of mental health disorder disorders. Mm. Or sometimes What's I just been the concerns because I think, you know, just get a problem with your mental health in some way, no matter what are the things you need to do, like if you have depression, there's a lot of different ways to think about that or handle it. But one that like everyone should think about 
is how are you eating? Is how you're eating contributing to the depression or are some changes in how you eat could that contribute to you getting better? And so that, mm. that's, that's nutritional psychiatry in a nutshell, Sean. Yeah, I mean, at a fundamental level that, that all really makes sense. Um, I actually thought it was something that existed for quite a while and I just was completely unaware of it, just of my lack of knowledge in the industry. But I'm surprised actually to hear it's only been around 15 years. Like it, it, it totally makes sense that what we eat affects so much about all aspects of our lives, including our energy, including our mood, depression, you mentioned to be one of them. Um, brain. The best data is about, <clears throat> about depression. I mean, depression and dementia yeah. sort of in terms of quality of data and evidence, that's where most of it really exists in terms of nutritional psychiatry. Certainly some other data for ADHD and anxiety, but for example, randomized trials, the really the, you know, the gold standard in evidence when it comes to medicine and medical practice, the first ever randomized trial to use a dietary intervention to intentionally try and treat depression and test if it could work. That was published in 2017. Wow. It's, you know, we're it's actually like yesterday. Almost exactly, almost exactly five years from the anniversary of the publication of that randomized trial. It's called the SMILES trial. Huh. And what was the findings? The findings that trial was 67 people. It was an interesting trial. They took people who were, you know, like a lot of folks who are working on their mental health. They were, a lot of them were in some therapy. A lot of them were getting a medicine. Um, and uh, to those patients, they randomized them into a group that got a uh, Mediterranean diet intervention where they got six nutritional counseling sessions uh, around eating a more Mediterranean style diet and assessing their diet and sort of doing the kind of things that we do in the brain food clinic, really helping people think about who are you as an eater and how can we help you do a better job and eat, you know, the stuff that's on the Mediterranean diet that's good. And then they had a control group that was a befriending group. They found that people who were in the Mediterranean uh, diet group, 30 3% of them went into full remission of their depression. And 33% wow. might sound not sound like a big number, but these are people who are already in treatment and resistant depression is really the thing that mental health in some ways is struggling the most with. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people who do better, they get better with psychotherapy, they get better with the medicine, but it's that, you know, 30%, let's say maybe sometimes 40% who don't respond to an antidepressant medicine or don't respond to psychotherapy. So that, 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 was, that was a result of that trial. So it was exciting to see. So how long was that trial period for where they were eating Mediterranean food for? Uh, they were eating med the Mediterranean style diet. The, the overall trial, I think was 12 weeks. And That's you it. Know, for, wow. for most, most people, what we think, uh, if you look at other trials, like the healthy med trial, which was the next randomized trial completed, uh, which had really severely depressed individuals in it, you see a rapid, rapid decrease in the first three months, but in particularly in the first month of, of change, dietary change. So it's, um, it, it's something that uh, most of the studies show works over maybe two to three months and seems to, at least in the longest studies, last up to six months. I mean, that's pretty profound. Maybe you're used to hearing the data, but when I hear that, that's a pretty profound finding in just three months, getting 30% of people out of remission. And knowing what people pay for a therapist, knowing what people have to go through in terms of the side effects of like antidepressant drugs, the fact that you can just eat healthy and cure, I mean, at least minimize depression while also maximizing your, your body and brain health. That's pretty profound. No, I mean, I, 
in well, 12 weeks. Say that, Sean. I mean, I think it's, um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people out there are missing a piece. I see a lot of patients who are, you know, they're doing okay on a medicine or they're, you know, they're, they're in a psychotherapy that's helping them. And, you know, a few things are clear to me. Like one, if you don't eat well, you're, you're just kind of putting a headwind against your progress when it comes to your brain and mind growing towards, you know, us doing the work that we all need to do to understand ourselves and do good in the world and, and, and live a meaningful life. So mm. having, having a, a diet that supports your brain being more in a grow mode, more in a, a, a mode uh, that really optimizes your chance of feeling good, creative, clear, optimistic, you know, we're not going to feel that way all the time, but cer certainly it seems there are ways that we can eat that at least per the evidence going to help with that. Sure. And was the idea there, you're trying to, was there any studies or was there any findings from that specific study to compare the effectiveness of therapy or antidepressant drugs versus the Mediterranean diet that people were taking? Or was it really more that it's yeah, kind of like you need to do all of these? Like, we've not yeah. seen any trials of food versus med. And, and, and I kind of hope we don't because that's I think when we go down that route, a couple of things happen. One, we kind of buy into all the, what I feel is really kind of garbage and misinformation out there about pharmaceutical medications. I'm just, I don't know, I'm yeah. a very integrative, natural, holistic guy. I also have talked to thousands of people about their mental health and prescribes a lot of meds. So, mm. you know, it's, and so I think that certainly for some people changing your diet for the worse is going to make you more depressed, more lethargic, worse sleep, changing your diet for the better. It's going to improve your, your mood, your anxiety, <clears throat> Lots of reasons for that. Um, and then I think for certainly for some individuals, uh, and let's take, say you're talking to someone who's leading a vegetarian lifestyle, they don't want to take supplements. That means they're over time going to run low, uh, unless they're eating a lot of really fortified foods, but probably run low on B12, maybe iron yeah. and zinc. So if that's an individual who might be interested in eating something like clams, mussels, and oysters, that's an, you know, that's a situation where 100% you're going to prevent or treat a depression due to B12, uh, low B12 or low nutritional status based on adding in a couple of foods that have those nutrients. That sort of situation, I wouldn't say is rare, but that's not most of what we see. Most of what we see clinically is people are struggling with the modern American diet and the modern American lifestyle. There's yeah. a lot of cheap food. It's hard. There's not a lot of encouragement to eat healthy in a certain way. Sure. There's not a lot of time anyone has. It's hard to chop vegetables when you're holding your phone, scrolling Instagram. You know, I know it's like the one handed it's uh, it, it's really um, uh, helping people find some space and hold some space really for this very, what we consider core act of self-nourishment uh, and um, you know, a, a real way for us to measure in some ways um, how we're taking care of ourselves. Sure. Yeah. And that this topic is, I mean, I come from like a very conservative Korean background where this idea of therapy isn't widely even in mainstream world, right? You kind of have to go through some trauma event in order to seek any sort of therapy, but it's like how when the pandemic, there's the growth mindset from what I see. What, what, I mean, how does, how do people understand being in a growth mindset without doing under inner work? Is it just something that like your understanding sort of isn't valued that kind of, you know, I don't know, in a more Western culture, right? There's a some sense of internal conflicts that, you know, exploring them and working through them, at least there's some increasing value on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm all for that. I think I grew up at an early age being taught a certain way, 
but I've certainly just learned over time that it, there's a ton of value and you don't need to go through a, a traumatic event for you to go and really reflect on the things. Oftentimes things come up that you thought just wasn't an issue before. And you just realize like, oh, these are things that have blocked me, but I just in my unconsciousness, right? Um, but yeah, this idea of like anxiety and depression seems to have risen more, particularly with the pandemic. And I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts around that. I mean, it seems like we've kind of kept the same brains we've had for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, but this external stimuli of blue light and social media and notifications is not just something this old dinosaur brain that we still had for millions of years ago uh, is something that we're used to. And it seems like it's never stopping. Like we're entering the metaverse now. And, you know, is that why you feel, is that why you feel there's just been this rise of anxiety and depression? Or do you feel like people have already had that, but now we feel more comfortable talking about it because it's been more, um, there's less of a stigma now around that. I think both phenomena are happening. More people are talking about it. More people are opening up. I think there's more of a notion, as you said, you don't have to have a massive trauma or horrible panic attacks or bipolar disorder or severe depression to talk about your mental health, to talk about your feelings, to um, be open about some of those and, and, and maybe work on some of those. So I think that's happening where people are more open with that. The second, you know, are we seeing increasing rates of illnesses like depression uh, and anxiety? Certainly during the pandemic we have. And, and prior to that, you know, some illnesses, there's a pretty stable rate, bipolar disorder, psychotic disorders. You know, 1% of the population usually has schizophrenia or a disease like schizophrenia, about 4% has bipolar disorder. Um, so, however, there are a lot of things that have changed that certainly are increasing mental health concerns in part because they're replacing coping skills and structures that help us deal with the challenge of being human. Mm-hmm. That, you know, some, some of these are traditional structures that still exist, just fewer people access them. Uh, church is a good one, or, um, you know, uh, intramural sports, things that give people structures. One of the reasons the pandemic has taken a, such a hard hit on uh, people's mental health is that all of these coping structures, especially if you're somebody who struggles with your mental health, you know, once you get a handle on it, you, you you build your routine and it's really important to keep it, <laughs> you yeah. know, that once you get in that groove of exercising and eating well and working on your relationships and, you know, kind of not acting out professionally in terms of procrastinating or whatever you're struggling with, right. It, it's important that, that to, to keep that going. And that's where I think the pandemic just took away so many people's coping skills, whether it's you're looking mm-hmm. forward to that vacation that you weren't able to take or still aren't able to take or, um, I think one of the, 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 some of the structures that have been lost, for example, were around how we grieve for all the people listening who lost someone, a friend or a family member, or, or even an institution that just you know, isn't existing like it did. There's the usual ways that we grieve that, you know, mulling it over with friends or um, uh, going to a funeral, that, that just really has been incredibly disrupted. So, um, so yeah, do we have a, a huge mental health crisis before the pandemic? hundred percent, Sean, we did. Suicides were at an all time high. Overdoses were going up. Um, access to mental health care, as much as we, we talk and, and, and are excited about less stigma, access still stinks for most people. Does, actually doesn't really seem to, in some ways matter whether you're rich or poor or where you're from or what race you are in America. One thing seems kind of universally true to me. 
is that people have no idea how to access and best utilize mental health care resources. Mm, that's uh, so true. And it's really, and, it, and I appreciate that. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it, it's hard to know who to trust. It's hard to know what type of treatment you need. It, it's often expensive. So um, yeah, access is, it remains a, a big issue. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but luckily, like this idea of associating food and treating depression, anxiety, it's something that people are already doing. People are already eating every day. So we're just asking yeah, people to alter the thing. It's an, it's an easy thing that anyone can follow. Um, now, what is it about the mess, this Mediterranean diet, particularly that you think helped with this remission? And are there any other diets and other types of foods that we can learn from of eating? It's a great question, Sean, because if you were my patient, I wouldn't be saying, Sean, the Mediterranean diet really rocks out for your mental health. You should be eating a lot of it. And I just want to, so, so this book, The Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety is my most recent book. And I sang yeah. in the contract for this book a week before the pandemic hit. And, and, and in some ways I got kind of worried, like, oh, people think I'm writing this for the pandemic, but I was really happy it was coming out with the hope that it would help people and give people, you know, not a silver bullet, but another set of tools a way to take care, especially where, you know, parents are wanting to take care of their kids' mental health and want to do something, but you got to, you know, you've got a teen on your hands. Can, can you um, engage with them around nutrition, you know, challenging mm -hmm. them to something that, that might help. And, and so <clears throat> working with you, I'd get curious, you, you mentioned having Korean background uh, uh, around your experience with that diet. I'd want to know what foods you eat now, how you feel about foods, you know, how your culture plays into uh, your values and ideas and hopes and dreams about food, right? Do you, that's sure. food you want to get away from and, and was forced on you? Or is that food that like you really miss and you've been indoctrinated into the Western diet? So yeah. all that would really inform from a nutritional psychiatry perspective, how we would get you more towards a traditional diet. Mm -hmm. And if let's say that you loved pizza and pasta, you're very Westernized and you really w wanted that kind of food, you know, sure, I, I would... I would go where the best place is to begin intervening to think about how to increase the nutrient density in your diet. And by that mean, I mean, getting more nutrients for the calories that you're eating. And so mm -hmm. in, in all of my work, I really try and focus on foods and food categories to really get away from this idea of fear mongering, right? If you eat this Western food, it's horrible. You're going to have horrible depression and dementia and diabetes. And I mean, I appreciate that fear works, but I think that's left people really confused and susceptible to a lot of misinformation and, and marketing and, and, you know, even oftentimes well-meaning people who just do a lot of damage with their messaging around nutrition and, and also around mental health. It's just yeah. a lot of bias in both of those worlds. Uh, and so I would begin looking and thinking about, you know, what are, where are the plants in your diet? Where are the leafy greens in your diet? You know, are those things, if I don't see them that you like, you don't like, you don't think about, you know, I never thought about fish and bivalves back when I was a kid in Indiana. I wasn't like, <laughs> yeah. ah, hey mom, let's have some anchovies for our brains. You know, this is, <laughs> this is new information that a lot of us didn't know about or don't know about, or, or some of the science didn't exist. And so sure. um, that, that's, I would want to move towards a more traditional diet. It, the, the number one finding from that smile style study uh, you know, people ate another fish serving week, people ate more vegetables per day, people eat more fruit, people ate more nuts and beans. That's all awesome. But people also cut out 21 meals of processed food per week. Mm. So that means, you know, you're eliminating almost all of the nasty snacks, almost all of the, you know, commercial baked goods. You're really getting rid of a lot of the foods that we know are associated with depression or increased sure. depression risk. Sure.
So would you rather have people focus on not necessarily adding these foods, but the, is the start, if you were to work with a client to say, mm -hmm. you know what, let's just start by removing some of these things in your daily nutritional you know, habits. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I never really, I mean, uh, the way that I tend to phrase it is I ask uh, my patients uh, as we're going through and I kind of take a dietary history to sort of one to think about it and, and to think about what they see is missing and to try and hop there where if they're, you know, if they're saying, oh, I, you know, I've got this really bad habit. I really love to, you know, drive my car to the lake and get out a whole thing of Twizzlers and just sit there and eat them. You know, I think a lot of people hear that as like horrible processed food and candy. And I, as a psychiatrist, I kind of think like, well, that sounds like some nice time with yourself. Like, could we, could we get to the smaller Twizzlers? And maybe is there something else that, you know, I wonder what that would feel like if somebody had a little hummus and crudite, right? Mm. Or somebody had a really nice glass of kombucha with that. Or, you know, how, again, you can think about, well, that's a really beautiful moment. Instead of trying to say, like, remove the Twizzlers, I'd be like, huh, you know, like that that's the healthiest thing I've heard that person do go drive to the lake. And, and so sometimes it's yeah. not that, you know, obvious or easy, but I think that's where we want to think about it. In our clinic, we have a, a handout called simple swaps where we look at things like, you know, if you have people over to watch the game, once people start doing that again, and, you know, instead of ranch and cheese dip, like what if you have guacamole and pico de gallo, like everyone eating that just dosed their brains with like all the good stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's a very simple swap. If you like to drink soda, right? It's very, very hard to get off soda, but not that hard. I mean, it's just, it's just sugar water. Can you swap that out for something like kombucha for a little while? Just to try it out, to see how that goes. You'll be a little bloated maybe for just a little bit, but over time you're gonna be changing your microbiome and you've also decreased the sugar calories you're getting from your drinks by about 70%, 80%. Yeah. Kombucha has a little bit of sugar, but it also has all these interesting fermented bugs in it or, you know, bugs that do fermentation. And um, so that's where, or, or even better herbal tea. I'm sitting here sipping my zero calorie, very inexpensive stimulant. I've got a couple of bags yeah. of Earl Grey tea in here. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, just, uh, and nice thing. There's so many different flavors of tea. You get, you get a lot of what you hope for in that soda, a little stimulation, a little perk, a little energy, but none of the inflammation and, and sugar. So those are some of the ways when, again, as you're saying, we want to kind of remove things that really try to hone in with people understanding what the importance of things are. Cause I just, you know, there's so much of that diet culture, right? If you take all this stuff out and put all this stuff that I sell you in, you're going to be great. Yeah. And I think people are really susceptible to that, but also fatigued and, and, and damaged by that mindset about how we approach our health. It, I think it's a good illustration of what the difference is between a nutritional uh, of nutritional psychiatry versus what a typical nutritionist will guide you, which is I've seen people miserable and, you know, filled with anxiety from the following this extreme diet where if they miss a little bit, or they're just going through this suffering process of months and months to go get this goal because they can't eat certain, you know, zero sugar, you know, for a keto, let's say, or, you know, zero carbs and it makes them miserable. Uh, and what happens is like a couple months later, they disassociate, have this negative perception of like following a diet and eventually they fall off. Right. And 
yeah, I, I can see. You know, I think it illustrates something about nutritional psychiatry that for me is really meaningful and important and I hope for people listening might be. Where, where you're thinking about this shift of thinking about why most people go to keto, which is like weight loss, right? Whereas when patients come to me with keto or keto questions, a lot of physicians are like, ah, keto's bad, you're gonna die of a heart attack. I, I get really interested in the question, well, how does keto affect brain function? Because yeah. it does. When you're in ketosis, your brain, which is very, very hungry, burns about 420 calories a day. Sorry, I've been talking too much, Sean. Yeah, the, the suspense is there. <laughs> you said 400 calories a day, and now people are listening. <laughs> yeah, the brain burns 400. It's just kind of crazy to think, right? When I get on the treadmill like old man Ramsey, and I like start jogging at my seven miles per hour, it takes me a hell of a long time to burn 420, 450 calories. So the yep. brain is very very energy intensive mm. and, and, uh, and it feels to me also because it does the coolest thing, right? Like I appreciate we want our bodies to be certain shapes and sizes, but you know, your, your body's your body. And if you feel for the most part, for most people, you feel you did real whole real foods, um, uh, it, it operates very well. And so I like to approach things like ketogenic diets or is, you know, folks are thinking about other, what I would call dream diets or diets that put your physiology in a, in a real, you know, specific and different state. How does that affect mental health? The studies on keto, there's very little, but there does show a little bit of people on keto long-term, like a year, a little improvement in cognitive function, not much change in mood. Um, but certainly- Why is there a cognitive people, function improvement? Because I've seen people that have memory improvements and function the, of clarity- the two ideas behind that one is that ketones are a more efficient fuel. They produce less waste as you burn them. I'm not sure how true that is, but that's the kind of research idea. Um, mm. The other is that when you're fueling, for most people, fueling on a lot of sugars and carbs usually means a lot of sugar and simple carbs. Those tend to be quite inflammatory, leading to weight gain, which is quite inflammatory. And all this leads to what happens, we talk about an eat to be depression and anxiety. One of the chapters is all about inflammation. And I was really struck in some of the expert interviews that I did around, you know, the researchers, were, you know, I'm thinking like, ah, oh, there's like wellness juju, right? Inflammation, like how's it affect the brain? And they're like, oh, it's horrible. It shuts down mood circuits, messes up anxiety circuits. You know, people have brain fog because of the cognitive circuits. And I was like, mm. wow, it's, it's a really, uh, and increasingly people are beginning to think about things like inflammation indirectly, how it relates to depression or seeing a kind of whole revolution in how we understand and think about illnesses like depression. So that's where I would say when people go on keto, uh, you're, you're, you're getting some of that effect. I would also argue that the way that we kind of encourage people to eat in the brain food clinic, if there's any way of mainly focusing on pleasure and joy and, and, and doing that with a lot of different whole foods and, and things like dark chocolate, right. That you get some of those, uh, really same huge benefits of decreasing inflammation um, that, uh, and, and some of the same kind of cognitive clarity and, and uh, improved mood. Mm, got it. Got it. Yeah. I, um, I'm fascinated by like optimizing brain health. And I think it's hard for people to really know how big of a difference it is, especially if you've eaten sugar or carbs, like if you've had the same diet in your whole life, you won't really notice, you won't really be convinced of it until you try out something similar to keto. I guess you could also get that from just eating low carbs and seeing the difference of how you feel in terms of your memory and stuff and so forth of the before and after. 
Um, what are some of the other foods and, and um, that you can eat to optimize our mental clarity and brain health? Yeah, so uh, I want to talk about some of the, I have a list of power players in the new book and a bunch of illustrations around this, but you know, we're looking for foods that are going to increase or influence things like BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factors, the molecule in our brain that is really important for our brain's growth and repair. And how you eat in your dietary pattern seems to really influence the expression of that molecule. So we tend to work in food categories. So it's we're looking at leafy greens as an important food category. It doesn't matter if it's kale or bok choy or uh, collard greens or arugula. They're all really nutrient dense. You get lots of vitamin C, lots of folate, you get fiber and, 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 and water, right? A cup of greens usually has about 30 calories. And this is also a really good area where a lot of people are seeing misinformation, right? You've been increasing seeing, I've been increasingly seeing information Maybe it's because I was like Dr. Kale for a decade when I had National Kale Day and launched that book, 50 Shades of Kale. But I, I'm getting all these, you know, information or ads about plants being toxic and greens are horrible for you and give you kidney stones. And it's just, just kind of fascinating to see so much kind of garbage spewing out of people in terms of misinformation and just, I don't know. Anyway. So leafy greens, uh, rainbow vegetables. It's just where really, I would say there's one tip I would take from, from this podcast, folks, uh, besides seafood and dark chocolate, we'll get to in a second, and fermented foods. But uh, oven roasting vegetables with some olive oil, it doesn't matter if it's broccoli or cauliflower or peppers or potatoes, just getting good at that in the sense of it's really quick and easy, but you know it's not instant, right? It means you got to slide things in there for 15, 20 minutes. But Oven roasted vegetables are just one of the easiest ways to bump up olive oil, which is a really important, probably the most important fat besides the omega-3 fats to eat for brain health. Wow. So that's the main, you know, my, my family and I, we go through probably at least a liter of that a month, just really douse it on everything. Great fat. Uh, again, as your, your note, hey, if you're going to, you know, eat fewer sugars and carbs, where are you going to replace those calories and fats and proteins is kind of where we tend to do that with. Um, so colorful vegetables, look at your plate, see a variety of colors. Um, nuts and beans, again, just looking for whole foods that are great sources of fats, proteins, minerals, vitamins, and phytonutrients. Nuts and beans are just incredible for that. I mean, just incredible amounts of fiber. A lot of people don't eat beans. So they have one bean meal, they get super bloated and gassy. They say beans give them gas. You know, your gut has to adapt to these things. And so as you start to eat, if you're not eating a lot of plants, don't go eat like a giant kale salad. You know, it's where you want to start with wilted greens and smaller amounts and kind of let your body and your microbiome adapt. Um, some of my other seafood, we should just talk about that. The long chain omega-3 fats are really important for brain function, as is vitamin B12, zinc, iodine, a selenium, and a complete protein, plus a bunch of other B vitamins. And you find all of that in seafood. Seafood is really an incredible brain food. And, and I've been increasingly trying to work with people on their kind of seafood game to, especially during the pandemic, increase their consumption of canned fish, sardines, anchovies, even canned wild salmon and making wild salmon burgers. Great, great recipe. Each beat depression and anxiety has uh, recipes for every one of these sections. Um, but also- Are those not processed by the, like, I guess I associate maybe for, for wrong reason, something that's like canned and not in a fresh refrigerator yeah. as right. something no, yeah, that, that's a you know- yeah. yeah, right. How old is that? So yeah. if you think about it, you know, all fish, they pull it out of the sea, they freeze it. It takes a while to get to your fishmonger, not that long. 
so almost all seafood is frozen with something like a, a anchovy or sardine. They're, you know, they're usually cooked, put in olive oil and, uh, and tinned. And so in some ways they're incredibly fresh. They haven't been out, they haven't been oxidizing at all. They haven't been getting freezer, freezer burn on them. Um, but it does take a little, if you're not used to it, 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 I remember the first time I started doing this, I'm like opening up the tin. I'm like, this is freaking cat food. Like this feels like I'm about to feed the cat. Like this is not right. <laughs> not yeah, I have a dog too. So like, I'm, I'm used to just feeding my dog a piece of canned. You know. Exactly. So, you know, you got to fight through that, but, um, I'd recommend people try the, the wild salmon in a can. First of all, it's economical. A lot of people, when we talk about brain food, you know, they point out like this is really expensive food of privilege. So we, we've got actually a resource on our website, Brain Food on a Budget, that if you just Google that, it'll pop up. And, and it, it's going through a lot of these foods, the, the general cost of them, um, what the kind of staples are that help a kitchen be a little more brain friendly. And then what are some of the kind of weekly foods that we tend to recommend and their cost, just with this idea for, you know, food costs money, especially these days, it's really expensive. But if you yeah. use your food dollars wisely, a lot of these foods, lentils, for example, super inexpensive, dried red beans, super in a kale, big bunch of organic kale, three or four bucks. I mean, there's uh, sardines, usually anchovies are 99 sardines, cents yes. a tin usually, right? So a lot of these foods are inexpensive. Um, so I, I think that uh, in terms of the other food categories and quickly fermented foods, kombucha, uh, kefir, which is a fermented yogurt product and all of the smoothie recipes, just because it sure. has the most bacteria of pretty much everything I found. Um, it's just been a revolution in fermented beverages. So I think it's again, you know, one of the, again, the big swaps that I see people making, uh, I've certainly made in my own life is really at some point understanding that alcohol is really bad for mental health and kind of always, and yeah. that you can still have a good time, lots of good times with that alcohol, probably better times and, and swapping that out though, for some fun things. And it's really nice now there's all kinds of different wild flavors of kombuchas and hopped kombuchas and teas and, you know, all kinds of mixologists with sober cocktails. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting time to consider that. Not so many people. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to go through in terms of particularly with brain health is obviously like supplementation is a big topic in diet and nutrition. Uh, people do it take whey protein and all that stuff to work out, but they also take omega-3 and B12, all these different things. There's been though, this this rise of brain supplements that have come to around. Even like, I think Joe Rogan has a company that has some, some soul, I think it's called Alpha Brain or something like that. So um, I trust with my neurons, Joe That's Rogan. right, right? So I mean, exactly, exactly. Um, I'm curious to get your take on something like that. I mean, what's your overall take in terms of supplements? Let me just speak as, right into the microphone, Sean. Yes, right, right, uh, right close. For yeah. the most part, um, there are yes. a few supplements that have some data behind them that are interesting. I think supplements for the most part are sold based on fear, are often mm. quite low quality, are incredibly marked up. And, and damage people's health. You know, people are all freaked out about big pharma. Right? They hear I'm a psychiatrist, think I'm in the pocket of big pharma. You know, big pharma, in my mind, is uh, nothing compared to big supplement. Wow. Big supplement has no regulation. Big supplement has no consequences. If Joe Rogan sells his brain supplement and causes dementia in a bunch of people in 10 years, <laughs> nobody's going to come after Joe Rogan. Right. They're not going to lose that. Is that because it's, it's not FDA 
approved. It's not FDA anything. It's, Joe Rogan or anyone out there, not just Joe, uh, and nothing against Joe. Uh, you can create a If you and I, Sean, decided we want to create our wild brain supplement right now and got off this podcast and called up the supplement corridor, told them what we wanted, sent them a graphic for the label, we get a couple cases of our supplement next week to put them on shelves. You don't need to be a doctor or uh, anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a lot of them are buying from other bigger manufacturers, just putting out a different brand label on it. Right. Yep. And so a lot of these things, you know, people don't like to talk about it. Like what's one of the most popular brain supplements, phosphatidylcholine. What's everybody in the kind of heart health worked out, worked up on TMAO, which is a byproduct of choline. That's why the vegans and the vegetarians feel they have some good data that you shouldn't eat eggs. I'm not sure that's true, but Again, all the people who've been pushing phosphatidylcholine as a big brain supplement with no evidence for the past 15 years. Yeah. So I, 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 my feeling is your body is a temple, Sean. I think that my body is less of a temple as I approach 50, <laughs> but I'm trying. And everything you put inside of it, you must process. You must detoxify with your liver or pee out and filter with your kidneys. You got to do something with it. And I think people don't think about that. They just kind of almost treat their body like the garbage can like anything you, you put in there anything and if there's a chance it's going to help your brain well why yeah. not and i just feel like you you know folks you've been given the most amazing gift right you have a human brain it is like it's annoying and complicated sometimes no doubt and moody and but i mean it's it does all this great it sleeps it dreams it falls in love it creates it learns languages it travels i mean it's like brains are cool so mm. you know just don't throw anything in there and yeah, maybe that sounds like an extreme stance. I just think there's a lot of softness in this area in the sense of like people love to dick around with a lot of bias around mental health disorders and act like, oh, it's okay. Like try this supplement with no evidence. Try omega-3s, try creatine, you know? And it's kind of like, I, I'm all for self-experimentation, but the end of the day is like men, if we talk about our population, 80% just never ever seek any help for their mental health. And a lot of people take supplements thinking they're helping with their mental health or intending for that. And I just, I don't know, there's, I guess a concern I have that it just feeds into bias and stigma. Right. Yeah. And, and it's true. If you came to see me as a doctor and I totally healed your depression with like turmeric and omega threes, you'd be, you'd be bragging at every party about it. I'm so much better. What got you better, Sean? Oh, so this great doctor, omega three fats. And, but if I put you on um, lithium and Zoloft, you wouldn't tell anybody. Mm. How you doing, Sean? You're better. What happened? Oh man, I'm just feeling better. You know, I'm exercising. I'm sleeping better. Sure. Yeah. That's you know, and that's just stigma. The bottom line is, in both those scenarios, you feel better, and that's what's mm. important. And so, I think that's why I get a little annoyed. Sorry, I get on a little rampage about supplements there, everyone. I just feel like, <laughs> as a psychiatrist, you spend a lot of time seeing that. Um, and I don't want to deny it anyway. Meds have lots of side effects, but you just sort of see a. Uh, a way that people tolerate a lack of efficacy because things are quote unquote natural. And yeah, you know, I, I just, uh, I, don't, I don't think suffering is worth that. Well, I already know what you're going to say about this next kind of transition I was talking about, which is when people go on the far side of the spectrum of, you know, experimenting with supplementation and avoiding natural food. I don't know if you know this company Soylent where they have Soylent. that. Yeah, they don't want to do any of this self-care stuff. They just want to like slip the mother's milk. Yeah, all you know liquid what a psychiatrist form. thinks of Soylent. I never want to leave my computer so I can just have everything I need out of this little. I think they yeah. should put it in a, yeah, they should just put it in bottles with a big nipple. That's what I think about those guys. 
Well, I'm curious, like, what are, if someone, because I've seen people do videos around just drinking Soylent for breakfast, lunch, dinner. I mean, you as just knowing all the, all the kind of so eventually, potential side effects, all the what are the side effects? Super sick. One, yeah. nutritionism. You're reducing the magic of the human nutritional experiment to something some, I don't know, some tech bro could figure out. That's real dangerous. Mother Nature's a hell of a lot smarter, right? So you're not getting yeah. any fermentation products. I don't know how they do fiber. I haven't looked through all the ingredients, but you're not getting a lot of it. You're yeah. not um, uh, you're not giving the gut what it's always gotten. So mm. how does Soylent affect the microbiome? I mean, that's like the hottest thing right now, right? You think it'd be, wow, there'd be a lot of studies on that before people would be like, this is the way to eat. Yeah. Right? And then I just think that whole idea that all you need to do to have a good experience with a human is input fuel. I just think that's fucked. Mm. And I think people who promote that are fucked. I think yeah. that they have no sense of mental health. And I, I really, I, uh, I fear for them, their health and the impact they have on other people. Yeah. I mean, luckily I think that company has had some major issues. They had, Something got went into one of Let's their not bottles. Wish and will was... on them, Sean. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, they, I'm sure, have good intent. That I would say that someone on the other end of Soylent would argue, look, this is all nice, Drew, but some yeah. of these guys are just either not going to eat, or they're going to eat Doritos and a Twinkie, men and women, right? I don't know. I feel like Soylent's targeted towards programmers, and so this is a way for them to, you know, supplement a meal. Mm. I don't know how's Soylent better than Ensure. What's Ensure? Ensure is the uh, like kind of disgusting, taken concentrated shake that that all kind of elderly people or people who are needing to put on some weight get in the medical uh -huh. system. Ensure is, you know, it's like it's 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 like the original protein shake. It's like there's vanilla and chocolate got and some it. little can usually, and I feel like and it's got all the vitamins and minerals in it. And it's the it was I think Soylent is probably a knockoff of Ensure. So. Probably for millennials and Gen Z, you know, I guess that it's want got to save time. In there, so they probably don't have, yeah. Anyway, I have I no idea more about Soylent before I talk about it. But I, I as yeah. a, somebody who grew up on a farm and as somebody who thinks that food ritual and food culture is an important aspect of the mental health benefits of it. And the Mediterranean sure. diet isn't just about the Mediterranean. It's the people who are eating those foods that are also eating them usually within the context of that culture. They're cooking. Maybe they have a little herb garden in their window. They usually, you know, they dance more. When was the last time you saw people at like uh, Applebee's? Like, hey, let's have a little like group dance here as something comes. I mean, every now and then, right? But it's not. Yeah. There's more, uh, more activities that that kind of help with mental fitness and insulate mental fitness. So, you know, the diet certainly Got it. part of it, but there are these other aspects that I think we need to need to engage in. So, yeah, I think you touched on the importance of gut and microbiomes. I, I don't think um, that's being, I think it is certainly talked a lot in the nutritional world and people that are in it certainly gets, that's like the big thing. But um, is that like a relatively new finding over the past like 50 years that we just didn't really understand? Like why is the gut so important for people that don't yeah, understand? It, it, it's a reasonably new uh, idea. We've always known, we called the gut for a long time, the second brain. We've known yeah. that there's this big nerve that connects the gut and the brain, the vagus nerve. The idea of how the different types of bacteria that live in your colon affect your health is a reasonably new idea. Maybe like 15 years, 20 years. And we've had the 
you know, uh, the gut microbiome projects going for a little while now. Mm. Uh, but a lot of people haven't heard about this. And, you know, even in medicine, it's, it's, it's not something that's actively being utilized that much. We've mostly been, you know, in medicine thinking about killing bacteria. But the idea for everybody listening is that the different types of bacteria in your gut and the different types of genes that these bacteria have, you know, some people argue it's really not the species of bacteria, it's actually your, the types, you know, the, the, the collection of genes you have down there. So you and your genetic code can't make B12. But some bacteria can, and they can't make enough for you to stay, you know, B12 replete, but they make a little bit. It's sort of interesting. Um, they make a lot of what are called short chain fatty acids, the microbiome bugs, and that's what actually feeds the lining of your gut. So we also know that when people gain weight, their microbiome shifts and shifts in a way that makes it harder to lose weight. So right now, in terms of mental health, we know that the microbiome, the types of bacteria in the gut for individuals who get depressed is different than individuals who don't get depressed. We know that um, uh, there uh, certainly we've shown in, sort of lab, in the lab a lot that disruptions in the microbiome really seem to influence aspects of psychology. And we know from medicine, right, the people with irritable bowel syndrome, uh, when you have irritable bowel syndrome, the, the rate of anxiety in that population before they're treated is super high. Like if you take a, a, a population that has gluten intolerance, like uh, full-on proven gluten intolerance, um, about 80% of them have pretty bad anxiety, understandably, just because, you know, it's anytime you eat, you get sick, basically, or anytime you eat gluten. Yeah. Once they've gotten a diagnosis and are on a gluten-free diet, the, the rates of anxiety drop down to that of the normal population. So, wow, that's huge. Got it. So it's like mood, it comes down to weight loss, brain health, like it's, it's energy really- Energy processing, right? That about 20% of the energy that you pull out of your food, you pull out in the colon, not by absorbing it, by having the microbiome digest it, extract things, and then feed it to you. Uh, so- I'll just say that, you know, if people are having problems in their gut health, you might notice like you're starting to maybe have some problems in your mood or a little more anxiety. And, and, and also there's how you add these things in, right? Again, I recommend people, it's funny, like the self-experimentation, I think is interesting, Sean, where people are willing to spend a hundred bucks on some brain supplement and take it for a month. Yeah. With the placebo effect on those things are, are very high. The, the long-term effect, you know, you need to take these things for years and years and years and years probably to, to really know what, what are the actual effects going to be? Do they separate from placebo? But I, I think in terms of food, experimenting is really quite different. One, it's encouraged because experimenting usually means exploring new foods and new food categories, right? People listening, maybe you, you haven't thought about putting clams in your potato soup. Maybe you hate clams, you never will, but maybe you like clams and clam chowder. And that's just now a healthy version where you're eating the food that has the most B12 of any food on the planet. Oh, um, wow. So there, you know, I think there's, there's lots of ways to experiment with food, to add foods in, to, to stretch our palates, mm -hmm. right. To learn to accommodate some of these foods. And I think that's yeah. all, all, all great stuff for us to do in service of our mental health. And to touch on the food for gut health, what, what are the top three best foods for gut health? So gut health, there are two we kind of think about. One are sort of probiotics. These are foods with live bacteria. Those are your kefir, yogurt, kimchi, miso. Um, I'm missing one that is really important, kombucha. And uh, um, those are a few, but so it's fermented. No, <laughs> so the, the, you know, the bacteria have chewed up the sugars and for the most yeah. part, and there's live bacteria in them, uh, in, in those you know, foods. 
Um, that's why you want to get them from the refrigerated section usually. Um, and then there's prebiotics. These are fibers in plants that are known to feed the microbiome. So that's where things like uh, onions and uh, are a great prebiotic fiber. Mm. You always see Jerusalem artichokes on that list, but you know potatoes are also good prebiotic fiber. So oatmeal is a great prebiotic fiber. Mm. And so that's where you know again it's not that complicated. But if you you know something you got to get rid of your pop tart. Sean, I know, I know it's a go-to breakfast for you, but tough. you know, tough can you leave in, you know, some some oatmeal uh, on the stove a couple of times a week, you know, and put a scoop of peanut butter and some blueberries in there, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like zero processed food, but like, damn, that's delicious. And maybe for a little bit, if you're used to a lot of sweet stuff, you need to sprinkle just a little bit of brown sugar on there again, like, or drizzle some honey, even better. Sure. But, you know, the idea is you're getting a ton of prebiotic fiber later in the day, you know, you drink some more fermented foods and just all those ways is starting to try and cultivate uh, a really, really diverse and healthy microbiome. Right, right. And all that affects our mood, helps with depression, all that stuff. Um, I'm curious to know, like, where you have experimented with clients or yourself or just research finding around this correlation of psychedelic usage and treating anxiety and depression. Obviously, there's like studies coming in from John Hopkins to legitimize this process. But since like the drug wars that, that's kind of happened between the government, obviously, you know, that all of that kind of has had that negative stigma around society. So like, what, what's been like any findings that you've been uncovering? And have you experimented any with clients? You know, it's not my exact area of expertise. I've been very interested in one of our, uh, the psychiatrists in our group practice, Xiao uh, Jie, who has real expertise in this. She's part of uh, Stephen Ross's research group at NYU at the psych- their psychedelic research group. Right now, they're conducting a single dose psilocybin uh, trial for, for major depression. And so we can, I've gotten to keep t- track of these, but also kind of hear from her, some of her insider's experience. I just interviewed her and it's up on uh, right. my blog at drewramseymd.com. Uh, but just quickly, the findings are uh, a couple of things. One, these are, uh, these are treatment protocols that take a while and are very expensive. And they're working a lot on the costs on those, but I think people should understand that a psilocybin treatment for depression in most protocols is now consisting of about 15 hours of psychotherapy and one to two experiences. Um, the experiences last eight hours and two therapists are there. So, you know, as you just kind of start to run the meter and then compare that right now, the psilocybin hasn't in any trials beaten traditional antidepressants. And, and mm-hmm. I know that it's very exciting and attractive, the idea that the psilocybin experience can, in a long-term way, cure depression, potentially prevent people from having side effects. I also, as a clinician, you kind of wonder who I was sitting with some patients and, 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 you know, again, thinking, well, what if they go and, you know, have a good experience or a bad experience or no experience. Uh, uh, So, um, but that's one psilocybin uh, MDMA, mostly for the use of PTSD looks like it's on track to get FDA approval in 2023. Wow. Um, uh, maps and, her, and the Horizon Conference are the kind of places to get a lot of implement, information about this. Um, MDMA is ecstasy, so you know the, the, it's a, you can tell where mental health is. The idea that there are now clinical trials treating 
our veterans and our police who have PTSD with ecstasy, uh, you know, and it's working. Uh, that that's really interesting time to be a psychiatrist. And then, and then the last is ketamine. That's the only legal. It's a you know, it's a psychedelic, but there's sort of question of one, do you need psychotherapy with ketamine? There's lots of you know, 300 IV ketamine centers that have opened in America because ketamine is an anesthetic. People have a psychedelic experience, but they mostly have a dissociative experience. You kind of leave your body a little bit. And um, if, if people have been to a club and seen folks snorting ketamine, they kind of end up in a K-hole. They're just kind of like yeah. on the edge of the dance floor, not really interacting very much. So, um, but Ketamine induces very rapid neurogenesis, so new brain cells being born, new sort of brain connections happening. It, it kind of got popular first as an anti-suicide agent that if you come into an emergency room, you're really, really suicidal. There have been studies that if you're given ketamine, like some people like 45 minutes later, you feel fine. And like, like literally that silver bullet miracle. So the problem with wow. ketamine is in a lot of the early trials and still it doesn't last. You get better, you feel better for two weeks, maybe for a month, then you need a booster or you need an oral dose. And, uh, and for some people it does. There's a great, the Ketamine Advocacy Network is a great network of people who's really worked for. So that's kind of the landscape right now in, in terms of what's going on in psychedelics. I think that what I see that's concerning is a lot of people, uh, you know, how do I say that there's this fine line between encouraging people to explore their minds as much as they want you know, and, and also, I guess, being somewhat concerned that there's a lot of hype about these and they're very, you know, it's very, these are very powerful agents, very powerful experiences and why, you know, for the most part, especially in these controlled settings, they're very safe, you know, like ecstasy has a bad rap because, you know, people do horrible things. They give kids ecstasy, put them in sweaty clubs with no ventilation and don't give them water. Oh, wow. Like that's why yeah. kids overheat and get hypothermia. And when you put public health programs in place where they make sure and give out free water in clubs and they <laughs> make sure and, you know, ventilate the place, uh, you know, you don't see those same types of problems. So, um, you know, not to say these things are universally safe, but in controlled settings, they seem to be. And, and what I'm excited about is just to have another set of tools in the toolbox. Um, in terms of what we're doing, we're, we're beginning to look into ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Our group is really... I think our strength and our sweet spot, uh, along with nutrition, really is our our, our strength is um, diagnosticians and psychotherapists. We just really, um, all of us in our group really value the uh, patient therapist relationship. And so we want to understand more about do these, how do these tools help us? Can they help us get people uh, in deeper, better? But, you know, at the same time, how do I put this? mental health, we've been getting people better for a long time without these agents. And I think that people yeah. should also, if you're struggling with depression, listening to this, like, please do not hang your hat on psilocybin or on uh, MDMA getting approved. Like, like right now, tomorrow, there's all kinds of things that can be done or taken or talked about that can treat your depression. And, and that's what's most important is that everybody's trying to take the best care of themselves they can. Yeah, yeah. Toolbox is probably a good way to approach it. There's no silver bullet that's going to work for everyone. Some people, it might be the psilocybin route. Some people eating healthier. Some people, you know, seeing a therapist. Like it's all different, right? All of our bodies work in a different way. We have different experiences. I think so. I mean, there's certainly some people where the antidepressants like Prozac are a real home run. And there's certainly people who have a lot of side effects and gain weight and don't like them. So I think what's tough, especially for the public, is that you can hear both of those stories, but the story we most often hear is where people have real problems with medications. And, and um, 
and it's hard for us not to be biased that the stories we hear or the, what we experience is what applies to other people. Yeah. And that's one of the benefits of being a prescriber is I've literally prescribed the same medicine at the same dose to the same person. And, and, and in one case kind of saved a life. And in the other case, like caused somebody to gain weight and be really depressed and sad. So mm. it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, the brain is very complex. Um, I think we mostly get it right in mental health more than we get it wrong, but, uh, yeah, it's exciting to think we're going to have more tools, more more precision, perhaps, in what we uh, prescribe and, and how we apply these tools. That, it's an exciting time for those things, for sure. Sure, yeah. Do you see an issue with this adoption of something like psychedelics happening when it comes to prescription because of the negative connotation that it comes with in society? Whereas if you prescribe medication... Mm. Yeah, I may not work, but like everyone takes medication. So it's, it's just, uh, I think a lot accepted. about that, especially as I work with a lot of, you know, younger people, younger men, and you know, you're on the phone with mom, I kind of wonder what it's gonna, you know, there's, how do I put this, I was on the, I was doing a consult the other day to going over options with somebody who was in some recovery, and I felt compelled to mention some of the psychedelic trials, psychedelic mm. trials, you know, and there was a real reaction from people like, what, what the hell are you thinking? I imagine it's like, well, you know, it's like sound, it sounds strange, but based on some of the evidence, it might just be something that at least, you know, we want on the dashboard to consider, you know? Uh, so it, it, it's, um, I do worry a little bit about that, Sean, like we just got back from the opioid crisis in a certain way. Right. And I think medicine has taken a real hit. Conventional medicine has taken a real hit for a variety of reasons. Um, in terms of how people think about us. So I do worry a little bit about it. I worry that was ketamine. Yeah, that, that um, I don't know, the horse got out of the barn a little early where there are a lot of people getting a lot of treatments and, and you know, the good thing is ketamine is very safe and very controlled, but got it. We'll see. I mean, the one thing I recommend if people are looking into some of these treatments, go to a smart, great place like uh, Columbia Psychiatry, where I'm on the faculty, they started a ketamine program, program three or four years ago. Josh Berman runs it. I've known Justin Sweeter residents. He's an incredibly smart psychiatrist. If I were going to get ketamine, like, I'd want to make sure I was in the hands of someone like him, you yeah. know, who really, and, and uh, so, yeah, um, that, that would be my, my thoughts on that. And, um, but I, I, I do find myself mentioning these things more and more, Sean. I would say almost every patient I consult with and talk to, I bring it up because I think people are wondering about it. People are curious about it. I think it gives us some excitement and some hope that we're really evolving into a culture that you know doesn't think about compounds just based on you know stigma and what, I don't know, people don't really know much about psychopharmacology. <laughs> um, you know, think about all these compounds and really thinking like, hey, what is the evidence? What's the evidence mm. this helps? What are the risks associated with this? You know, it's to note by far the most damaging, dangerous drugs in the world are totally legal tobacco and alcohol. So yeah, people forget that there's some way it feels like, you know, I heard someone predicting that like the number of deaths they're looking at there were these early LSD trials for alcoholism. Michael Pollan reports on this, and there's a great Peter Atia podcast speaking with David Nutt, who's a, a psychiatrist and British epidemiologist and public health guy. And he's basically kind of in his head doing the math, like there were these early LSD trials to treat alcoholism, and they were fairly successful. And he just kind of was like, you know, LSD is a powerful um, uh, psychedelic. 
but it, it, you know, not a lot of people will die or have bad trips. I mean, that, that kind of got overblown a little bit, especially right. in a controlled setting. So he just kind of did the back of the napkin math of how many people in the world have alcoholism. And you know, if you cured 10% of them, what, and it's like basically like 10 million people's, their lives could be saved. And you know, he was kind of estimating maybe like 75 people you know, just that like risk benefit ratio is yeah. uh, some yeah. of people would maybe have a bad effect or pass, for example. So anyway, I'll just say it's nice to be uh, during a time where people are really thinking about this and researching it. And I'm excited to see what the next trials uh, hold, but I'm, I think it's important we all remain kind of skeptical and a little cautious. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Especially as we understand more about the brain, like the brain is kind of like this last organ, it seems where we just we don't really understand quite fully because of the complex nature of it. But for someone that is today is kind of my final question, uh, Dr. Drew, as someone that's really going through, you know, a good amount of anxiety or depression or just like any form of it, right? Knowing all of the toolboxes that we talked about, whether it's eating good, antidepression, uh, pills, psychedelics, seeing a psychiatrist, all of these things, let's say everyone has these available from like a risk to reward benefit or just somewhere where you would rank in terms of prioritizing your action plan of where to start and kind of going from, okay, this is probably where you should start because, you know, there's not a lot of downsides or risks and it could help you. If that doesn't work, try this. If that doesn't work, try this. Yeah, How would you rank? Question. I would say the first is, you know, you try the self-care things and you give yourself a short amount of time, like two weeks, because it's easy to say, oh, I'm going to sleep better. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to exercise more and just still be freaking depressed. So I, I think that optimizing the basics, go to bed at nine or 10, uh, try and sleep well. But you know, the problem is when you have depression or severe anxiety, you're not able to do those things. I just saw a patient who lost eight pounds in one week because she didn't have any appetite. Uh, wow. You know, it, it's easy to say, oh, eat more brain food. It's like, well, you're in that state or having those symptoms, that's not possible. So I think of, of the things you list, what popped out to me is I think it's hard to be in your mental health journey alone. And there's a reason that our group really does a lot of psychotherapy and, and likes to see people in that format. We get a little bit more time. We get more time to get to know people, but also, you know, a lot of people envision this as decision is to like take a medicine or not. And, and that's almost never how it kind of pans out that, that there's a lot going on in individuals' lives, especially when they're struggling with their mental health and um, having somebody kind of uh, in your corner as you try medicine or as you try diet change, you can say like, yeah, you, you look a lot better. You're smiling and laughing. You know, it seems yeah. better to me when you don't think something's worth it or can say like, Hey, you've been doing such a good job. You've really been exercising. You still seem really sad. You know, still, you're not sleeping well. And I, I again, to help you formulate a pan, because for some patients, Sean, I meet them and, and it doesn't happen all the time, but you know, I started medicine right then, like during the mm -hmm. session, I send in the prescription because it's so clear, yeah. this is where we got to stop, start. And I think it's important people hear that because, you know, what I see sometimes is, you know, folks always want to, uh, not folks always, but I, I just see that sometimes there's almost a judgment of that. Oh, didn't start with sleep hygiene or this. And it's like, no, I, I didn't get a suicidal, you know, 20 year old on my hands. Who's yeah. got a million things going on in their life. And, you know, this is so, but the things that what you mentioned of what you mentioned for sure, the, uh, uh, the self-care and I would say sleep 
uh, nutrition and connection are the ones that I really try to focus on. When you're yeah. not feeling it, to at least, I wouldn't say go through the motions, but structure it. And as we all know, you get up, you don't feel like going to work, you feel kind of down or depressed. How you go? Well, sometimes by like 10 o'clock, you, you feel great because you're at work, you know, getting things yeah. done. And it, it helps as opposed to if you would have stayed home where you felt really down the rest of the day. Now you're missing work because you're depressed. It's really serious. So structure really helps. And then I'm a big fan of therapy, nutrition, some supplements, you know, some interesting data on St. John's Wort, a little data on rhodiola, but, but um, the food changes we recommend. And, and then, uh, um, and then when appropriate, thinking about medications. Yeah, that would be kind of the last last step if what the first two didn't really work, right? Again, sometimes, you know, sometimes. sometimes it, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, you know, some, and I just say that, Sean, because I think that's how people think about it, right? Medications is the last step. And I just like, I think that, I don't know, it does something to meds that I don't like, sort of fetishizes them and puts them in this like, where it's like one in, uh, uh, four women over the age of 60 take an antidepressant in America. And wow. I think a lot of people uh, say like, oh my gosh, we overprescribe. You know what I think about that, Sean? I think people should stop gaslighting women and being misogynist. Because mm -hmm. most women I know who are over 60, they got their shit together. They lived a long life and they're taking that medicine probably because it helps them. <laughs> and I just think mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's a way that, uh, uh, you know, we should, um, medications I know are a complicated topic, but I just think that there's a lot of pressure on people and it doesn't allow folks to have some freedom with their clinicians to sort out what's best for them. Is that go to show, what does that information show? I'm actually curious. It, does that show that women are, tend to be more depressed than men, or is it the fact that women seek out help more than so men are my, comfortable. One of my least favorite statistics in psychiatry is that women get depressed at twice the rate of men. And I think that's a really, I don't think that's true because 50% of men in their life have a substance use disorder. And I think that's usually how men deal with depression is substance use or aggression. Um, so, uh, but I think that's true for a number of reasons. One, there's more depression among women, apparently, although I, again, I question that. Two, I think the patriarchy does a great job destroying women's mental health over and over and over again throughout their lives. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's when they turn teens and they get sexualized and turned into objects or whether it's, you know, in the workplace where they're paid less or whether it's in relationships where, you know, the work that they do doesn't get valued by society. Uh, so I... Uh, I think that's one of the reasons. I, um, and then I think depression is just common is one of the other reasons. Um, and I think in that population, 60 plus menopause is tough. So you don't think that the other re also reason is, is that men aren't trained or in society were not taught to seek out for help and talk about our emotions because men are supposed to be tough and you're not supposed to cry. That's a huge part. Probably my favorite project for the last couple of years is working with my good friend and, and fellow psychiatrist, Greg Scott Brown, has an awesome book. It is Plug the Self-Healing Mind coming out um, this cool. year. And Greg and I've had this series with Men's Health Magazine about male mental health. And, and Sean, I think yeah. you're exactly right. You know, like if I get through it myself, like, oh, Drew is really down. What happened? Like, oh, I went to CrossFit. He's eating keto. He's ripped, bro. Like, oh, that's great. That's, that's awesome. He got his mental health this way. But if it's like, oh, you know, He's taken a couple medicines and, you know, he's in therapy and 
you know, that doesn't sound as cool or as manly, right? And, and so Greg and I are really working hard to talk with men about mental health. And it's, it's crazy, Sean. We interviewed people like G. Erbo talking about the first time he had a panic attack and went into therapy or, um, you know, just talking to all these interesting, Alan Houston about, you know, his faith and uh, how that informs, you know, so much of his life and his mental health. Or uh, we spoke to John Baptiste and, uh, you know, famed musician who's just got yeah, such an incredible mental health game, such a presence. Mm. So our hope is, is to really uh, help inspire the next generation of men to really redefine masculinity, including mental health. And, and not just, you know, we talk a lot about vulnerability, but not just from vulnerability, right? That doesn't in some ways make sense, but that, that from a sense of openness about ourselves and our struggles, we, we find incredible strength. That's really where we find strength. And all this stuff that masculinity has kind of been engaged in is in some ways, I, I don't think real strength, right? There's a lot of destruction in the way that we define strength, both for men, especially for men who aren't in this traditional dominant, you know, big chest guy kind of thing, yeah. right? Yeah, that, yeah. that I'm really excited to see what happens to masculinity because, you know, some of my favorite men, men I know that that's not how they operate. Yeah. You know, and they're and they're and they're known as as kind and empathic, and they lead, and there's still all that great stuff, right? That that we want in our men, but I don't know. It's just uh, people don't walk around scared of them. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, people don't walk around, you know, wondering what they think because they've worked hard to be clear on how they're communicating. So yeah, yeah. Either the men that I respect the most are the ones that are comfortable and confident enough about their self-awareness and emotions to, to talk about it and, you know, to, to express that, not to play and have this wall that, you know, society has been told. So no, I totally agree with that. Um, this has been amazing. I, uh, I really learned a lot just from a conversation. Where can le people learn more about you? Obviously you've got the new book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, uh, everywhere, wherever, wherever it's out, I'm assuming. Um, you've also got a couple of other books, as well, Fifty Shades of Kale, The Happiness Diet. Two, those are the two that really resonated with me. Um, where else can people learn more about you? So it is a hop on to our website at drewramseymd.com and, and you know, fun things we offer. We have our Friday Feels newsletter, which is really our team curate some of our favorite stuff in terms of mental health. Like this week, we've got the interview I did with Shaojay coming out just to give you a set of links and a recipe for the weekend to just kind of help you keep your mental health game up. Um, We've got some courses. Uh, we've got an Eat to Beat Depression course, and we have a, a brand new course coming out this year called the Healing the Modern Brain. We're really excited about. So um, make sure and sign up so you get all the info about that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So wanna you wanna like me or DM me or follow me? That's that's uh, I'm always appreciative of that. Amazing. Well, Dr. Drew Ramsey, uh, such a fun time. I really appreciate your time here. And um, yeah, hopefully everyone got a piece of actionable steps to, to take in for, for, the, for their day. And thank you guys for listening. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. It's great to be with you and uh, everybody have a good one. See you soon. Awesome.
Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.